You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sitting down with Dr. Dina Radinkovic for episode 20. Find out what the CEO and co-founder of Gamido had to say about ChatGPT and what it could do for healthcare in the next 12 months. Dina, thank you for joining us on First in Human. Thank you so much, Simon, for inviting us and for working with us at Gamido. Of course. Gamido is a very interesting mission. You guys are doing some fantastic work. Maybe tell us a little bit more about what it means to redefine female productive health and the great work you guys are doing. Thank you. So basically, Gamido, the mission is to redefine female productive health by developing therapies that improve lives. And I think the big problem there was women, we start making our gametes, our sex cells while we were still an embryo. So these gametes are sex cell or the eggs, as we call them. We have a finite number. We start losing them throughout life. We've already lost quite a lot by the time we get our first period. And, you know, our ovaries, which are the organs that contain these eggs, keep aging at a much faster rate than the rest of our bodies. So we end up with this situation that which we end up with reproductive aging that is much faster than the rest of our body. It happens at the pace. And then we express certain symptoms throughout, right? Like we first develop in functional infertility that occurs in women already in their early to mid thirties. And then later on menopause and all the conditions that occur during menopause. And we're effectively patients from the time we get our first period all until death. And there has not been a single company that is really providing treatments for women throughout their journey, right? Throughout the reproductive aging cycle and dealing with the consequences beyond that. And the second thing was providing treatments that actually are developed by women for women, right? I often say that if you just take a man going through an IVF cycle, which I mean, like if a man has male factor infertility, women are often gone through IVF. And if like one pharma for a man who has gone through that cycle, they would have changed it. They would have come up with better solutions. I mean, it's we give like these type of injections still to women that were haven't changed for the past over 20 years. Fundamentally, we believe that around developing medications that will have more precise and different mechanism of action that will try not to disturb our already delicate hormonal cycles. And we think that the conversation around fertility, which is, I mean, the first application of our cell engineering technology is in the assisted reproduction, IVF slash infertility space. We think that is an incredibly exciting field to work in. For example, if you take UK, where I've done my medical degree, egg freezing has increased tenfold from 230 cycles in 2009 up until like 2,400 cycles in 2019. So if you think about IVF right now, one in six couples suffer from infertility in the United States but only 2% of babies are born by IVF. What this tells you is that it's one of the very few fields where we can have very high growth that can double or triple within the next five to 10 years. And even if you look at metabolic disease and prediabetes, no matter how many Dunkin' Donuts you sell, it's unlikely that we can double or triple it because you know we are, we're not reproducing at that pace. There are not that many people. However, if you think about IVF, it is a field that is fast growing. And I think particular for women, as we are the current socioeconomic and demographic factors, the fact that the age that woman gets her first child is age of 30, the fact that we are balancing careers and many other things at the same time, modern women will want better control over our timeline. And if men can make sperm throughout life, 
why wouldn't women have the opportunity to do free, cheap, convenient, without major side effects, affordable egg freezing, just have it as an option to get more control over their timeline. So that's the field. Big mission, I think, around women's health, solving the conditions that a lot of them don't even have first-line medication, following women throughout the trajectory, building that relationship, building that trusted science-backed brand that is providing treatments for women throughout their life, and then initial application on infertility, given that it is this fast-growing field that is really not fit for purpose, is rapidly evolving, and we can use that it's still embryonic, no pun intended, and as a still small company, try to make significant big wins to allow us to tackle some of the other things that we're excited about in the future. We'd love to double click there on your first product, Fertilo. Tell us more about what it is, what it does, and how it compares to some of the, the fertility treatments in the market today. Yeah, absolutely. So Fertilo is essentially, so I just want to say that a lot of our underlying science with Gamito was done while we were staring stealth. And that is with a sponsored research agreement that is still ongoing with George Church's lab at Harvard Medical School. So some of the work that we've conducted there, and we have some work published, we have certain things about archive, a few more publications coming up in the next couple of weeks, but really is that we take stem cells and we engineer them into different cell types of the reproductive system. And we built the first stem cell derived organoid of reproductive system. We use a specific engineered ovarian supporting cell line to derive a biologic, essentially a treatment, which we grouped under a unit for TILA which essentially mimics what normally happens in the ovary. So normally in our ovaries, we have ovarian supporting cells and these ovarian supporting cells, they mature eggs and they produce the hormones that control our cycles. So we just replicate what normally happens naturally in a woman's body, but we do it in vitro, right? Like for a full in vitro fertilization, you get a more in vitro experience. We take out that women's bodies are essentially part of this lab setup and we try to do it more in a dish. So the idea is that we use our product to mature, immature woman's eggs in a dish and also improve the quality of woman's eggs in a dish. Therefore, we increase the success rate, the yield of current assisted reproduction cycles. We can reduce the number of cycles. And most importantly, we can reduce the need for the hormonal injections that women get. And because people often ask me like, wait, why do you need your drug? Why do you need your treatments? Why do you need your media? Why do you need injections? If you're taking women's own eggs, you're not making artificial eggs. But the reason being is that in order to get the extraction, the extraction process for men and women is very different. Men do not require proprietary medication. Their extraction tends to be quite easy. Whereas for women, we do require a series of medications in order to get eggs, more eggs, mature eggs out and the extraction itself is still a lot more invasive. It is still like something that you're given a general anesthetic, put asleep, you have a needle that goes through your vagina to both ovaries to extract the eggs. So we cannot change the procedure because anatomically, our ovaries are in the back of the abdomen. What we can do, we can cut down all these hormonal medications that cause quite a lot of side effects from starting with mood swings and ability to do daily activities, sports, things like abdominal bloating, distension, constipation, later on ovarian cysts, just, just like a disarray of things. And even in the mildest form, and obviously carry some of the other side effects and increase the cost and inconvenience. So making it as short and easy as possible for a lot of women and reducing the side effects so that more people can access assisted reproduction, which seems to be a trend, right? Like if we're going to tackle the infertility problem. You guys have been very successful in fundraising. Give us a sense of lessons learned through that process. And if a young biotech founder approaching you to raise their first capital was any therapeutic, what would you advise them? 
Yeah. So firstly, I would just like to take an acknowledgement that we're in a different fundraising environment than in a fundraising environment in which Gamita was raising. And I think I just want to first put that the founders raising right now probably don't have that much to learn from me and they shouldn't listen because frankly, there's very little I can tell them because there's much less external validity. Like there's a lot of less that can be passed on. However, if I was, you know, to guess what could be useful advice? I would say, especially in this market, try to build a long-term relationship with a few specific investors who you think are likely to be interested in your venture. And that is really because you make these people invest and they get invested into the project even before they've actually deployed capital. If we're saying that fewer deals will get funded, you try to get them committed, invested, and you differentiate your company from all the other companies that they could fund. Proof of concept is always very important. Obviously, that is much easier in technology than in bio. In bio, we often have to start with the idea because guess what? Proof of concept is at least a few million dollars. But another thing that I think is very exciting there in biotech is that you can often start from building your case from already approved research, finding like what was the research done all over the world with some research grants, uh, finding like previous papers, look at the global, what we've learned lately, like just mapping out the system. There's so many places where there was like one good scientist, there was some government funded grant, and then they paused, the company never got formed. A lot of this could be put together to at least make a case that what you're doing is scientifically plausible. Therefore, it is a scientific hypothesis worth testing, right? As you do in that round. Another good thing is seed funding. It still seems to be relatively spared. So although it is a much more difficult fundraising environment, and I think will be harder for all of us. I mean, you've recently raised a, a round led by General Catalyst. So congratulations. Maybe you have some thoughts to, to share in your podcast. But in general, I would say like seed round funding seems to be relatively sheltered from the wider picture. And then the final thing, I think it is really ensure there's space for your partners, right? Like be reasonable when it comes to all the terms. That's what I would say. So find that people invest in those relationships, make them commit even without committing capital, focus on building the scientific case from the resources that you have or that have already been done. If you don't have the financial resources and the setup to do your own proof of concept and then get a little bit to get going and ensure that there are a lot of good players and that everybody's got a chunk of the pie. Is it right that you guys are almost two years old, not not even two years old yet? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Hyperspeed is not typically something that people used to describe biotech, but something about the culture that Gimino has, it operates at an accelerated pace. But what is it about the culture you built that enables that? Firstly, I would say that it's too early to celebrate any success. Retrospectively, there are certain methods that have worked back then for us and I believe that set of methods work for like a specific period of time. And then the same methods won't work for the next phase of the company. We change as a company very quickly, right? We had one period from, let's say, March until August. Then from August up until now, we've learned a lot. And I was so happy that at our meeting just recently, everything that we've done in August, I was just like, oh my God, we were so naive, but didn't know so many things, right? So it's that rapid growth. And for different phases, you need different methods. The one phase that we could isolate where we did have high growth, high execution rate, and we're hitting our milestones in advance was certainly that period last year for which we now have enough data to guess reflect on. And I think some of the methods that I could isolate there that, that works very well for us I was very rigorous on the fully in-person company in the office. 
And if we think about, I mean, now it seems so normal, right? Like, oh, wow, yes, like most people are coming back to that. But if we think about like the Q1 of 21, it wasn't so much the case. Basically, a lot of people were telling me that I would not be able to recruit talent because everybody wants to work remotely. Everyone wants to work from Florida. You know, I had people being like, oh, but I want to work from two weeks in Miami. And I'm like, no, this doesn't count as like two weeks in, in the company. It's not how it's going to work with all the ski and this and with this many trips. And the question there was, look, I mean, yes, it might be more difficult to hire people, but like I need to hire maybe like 15 people. I don't need everybody. It's not like I'm building a country. I'm building a tiny little company. So actually, I do want to have those evolutionary pressures and those selection criteria because that will end up bringing people who really want to be here. So we ended up moving people. So like the vast majority of people who joined Gamito in the beginning are people who moved to the state of New York, the city of New York to work for Gamito in person. Those are people from all over the United States and abroad who were like, they said that this is a match for them. And I do think that finding your job is a matchmaking exercise, right? The job needs to be good and you need to be the good for the job. And then if you're good at it, you're going to love it. And then you initiate that cascade of positive multiplier effect. So what we ended up here is that we end up with people who are committed. They moved, they moved their partners, they moved houses. They wanted to be here. And for that reason, I think they were even more excited to give all in because you're going to push a bit harder since you've moved, right? Like you don't want to decide after two weeks out, oh, we're not going to do it because we're not including enough patients now that I've moved to New York to do this. So I think that turned out to be very positive, even though initially there, there were concerns from others. We definitely try to hire different people that complement each other. So knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are and knowing how to map them and trying to find different people. Another thing that I've learned is actually one of my investors, Christina Simon from Overwater Ventures, when I started going for more feedback and training, like, how do you pick the right people? What are the interview skills that you could implement to potentially, you know, identify the right match for the opportunities? And one of the questions that she did tell me was, you should ask them, what is the most difficult challenge you had to overcome? And she has worked with Costa Ventures and Andreessen Horvitz and Lemon, hired a lot of portfolio companies, now has her own fund. And that was one of the best questions that I started asking in, in every interview. And then I've decided to acknowledge my background as a medical doctor. I mean, doctors, are, we are detectives, right? Like we study people. And the idea is that from the moment a person comes in, you start observing their behavior, what they say, how they look, and you try to picture them, right? And you try to predict what type of a person they are and, and understand, like make your diagnosis, right? Sir Arthur Cotton Doyle the author of Sherlock Holmes series was in the end a physician. So I try to embrace even the things that I used to do when it comes to like psychiatric assessments and so forth on my placements. I really like trying to analyze people. And one of the two key things that I try and do when I do the interview process is how do you react to stressful situations and how resilient you are under pressure? And that is that. What's that most difficult challenge you had to overcome? And I try to picture it during those situations. So in addition to all the skills match, I think that resilience, that pressure is one of the most important factors of working successfully in a startup because a startup, especially in biotech, especially in this climate, is essentially an adverse environment. You need to be somebody who thrives in that adverse environment and gets excited by the difficulty rather than, you know, put off. And it's not for everybody. And I certainly don't recommend this to everyone, especially during the very, very early stages. But I think with that group of people who complement each other, have good communications, who are highly resilient, very motivated, and have already put a lot, it's personal, you know, they made them move to be here to do this. They're excited about the mission. I think we managed to really gather a group of excited people and that helped us deliver in that phase. Now, obviously different methods for different phases, but that was one positive. And again, the mission that you mentioned certainly helped. 
because it is a unique mission. There's not so much funding in terms of biotech for women's health. It is a neglected area and it's not difficult to really get excited about this. Those are one of the things that help us select uh, the first few people who really built the, the, the company up until now. When people talk about founder-led biotech companies, they talk about this new movement of not start a Cambridge studio, not professional CEO hired to run a company, but rather kind of personality-driven, mission-centric, Silicon Valley type companies. And I can't think of a better case than you. you. You seem to have kind of a reality distortion field around the company, incredibly mission-oriented. You've really built a very distinct company culture. Is this the start of a lot of companies you think that'll look like Gamito? And how do you think of founder-led biotech now and into the future? I would say that Gamito, we do need to mention that it was a very unique example that we started with a sponsor research agreement. So through that sponsor research agreement, we had the ability that before raising a Series A, we had a lot of the basing underlying science done. We were able to license retrospectively some of the work that was doing, adapted for Gamito's first product idea that we came up with. So the sponsor research agreement was definitely helpful. And it's kind of a hybrid where a lot of foundational research could be de-risked. And it's an efficient way to look at the biotech businesses. I do believe that with founder-led biotech, there is that component of just love, love for your product. And if you even break down love down the Medicare terminology, right? Like if you're in like very high like neurotransmitters, it's like giving a people general anesthetic in order to operate on them, right? Like when you really love and you're passionate about a mission driven company, you're going to go through hardship and just do more. So even if it's harder, there's nothing they can do to you because you're happy and you're in love, right? Like you're numb. You're, you basically have strong neurotransmitters that are acting for you to be resilient during that process. And that is something that it's very strong. It's powerful. It is captivating. It is charismatic. It brings people along and it gives you just that more energy to power through. On the other hand, the disadvantage of founder-led biotech can also be that because of that love, emotions can cloud your judgment, just like in any other scenario. So I think an important trap there is that in the end, you cannot mix that with your personal identity. You cannot mix that with like, oh, I really love this. This is the impact we want to choose. But actually, economically, it's a different decision that is best for the impact for the company, for the return of the company shareholders, right? So I think that is important that you get that love and that personal touch in order to drive things forward, but also in remain in control and don't let the you know, the passion and your inner involvement cloud your judgment and prevent you from making rational decisions for the business. And that can even be like you realizing who you need to bring along above you or step down or change roles. In terms of biotech, the problem is it's so expensive to do, right? It's so expensive to build something from start to finish. So I do believe that we're beyond that model where you can just like hire an executive who, you know, has done 50 of these jobs and he or she doesn't really care that much about that. And I think they could very easily be defeated, but somebody was more mission-driven and cares more about the topic. However, I still feel that the right balance would be something like founder-led biotech in more type of like biotech incubators where you could create certain places like collaborations with the know-how, things on manufacturing, the regulatory. And I still feel like hybrid of something like that would, would be the best stage forward. You know, hopefully other advances in this space are going to enable that it becomes less capital heavy, but it's because of this regulatory component. I think it's some of a hybrid will probably win. And Bao, we think a lot about exactly that, how to reduce the capital cost to run clinical trials, how to do that with technology. But there's lots of other enabling technologies, making it easier to start biotech companies, virtual labs, all, all sorts of other things. Is there something you're tracking closely that you think will come through and enable a whole new generation of biotech companies to be started? 
at Gamita, we build our largest omic library of reproductive cell types. I certainly believe that that's going to enable us to build that platform with sequence. That's going to enable us to do better in the future in terms of like, you know, we use software like Benchling where we recorded from all of our trial sites. We had same results coming in from Peru all across the United States and Spain when we were doing the first phase of our preclinical studies. We are excited to partner with companies like Vial, right, to work on digitally oriented clinical trials, patient recruitment and patient engagement. Often the reason why clinical trials end up getting negative results is because they don't end up reaching the clinical significance in a large population because people drop out. And reproductive care is one of the easiest to drop out. Okay, like you got into a trial and you're just going to baby. I mean, like your life is like falling apart, right? It's like a huge event. You don't care about the trial at that given point. So what we see is like this large dropout of follow-up and also like the speed of recruitment. And in reproduction, we're really focused around like people who are still relatively young, right? Like they all use their, their iPhone. They're all very young. Reproduction is still for the first half of our lives often. So what ends up happening is that with technology, we can recruit people with more targeted recruitment and we can engage them. Like we can focus on engagement. So they actually, there's no loss of follow-up. And just if you'd look at the numbers there, you could like reduce the cost of a clinical trial by about 30, 40%. So that is also something I'm excited about. And those are things that are like potentially already available that are cutting. And then in the future, I mean, I'm already seeing labs that are with liquid handling robots, a lot of robotics working 24-7 in the labs. So we built the Diovo program, right? Like the first overall female reproductive system, first stem cell derived female reproductive system. And, you know, you recently the FDA has passed, I'm sure you're aware that animal research may not be necessary, which essentially means that we're going to, in the future, see a lot more of organoid work and organs on a chip for the early phases of drug discovery. We can have a liquid handling and other robots in our lab testing this, you know, 24-7, right? Like, so that is super exciting. I mean, we work seven days a week because we work with clinics and hospitals and, you know, I'm a physician. So for me, any day is a, is a working day, but it is incredibly exciting. And that can lead to a lot more efficiencies, faster development. Another thing that is also super exciting is obviously AI. I mean, everybody is talking about the chat GPT and like, what could it do? But what could it do for healthcare? Like what could it do for healthcare in the next 12 months? And how will we be inventing? So historically so far, AI has not done that much for drug development. I don't know what your thoughts are, but my personal opinion is that we haven't yet seen, you know, <laughs> that huge impact. But only because we haven't doesn't mean that we won't, right? Like, you know, will we need biotech CEOs? <laughs> What's going to happen? Like, how quickly is that going to come up with novel companies? And I think that is really exciting. And it's difficult to predict like how drug development is going to work in 10 years. Seeing that right now, I hope it will be a lot better. So yeah, I'm absolutely positive around use of technology to program biology. I think we're already there with all of the cell engineering, and I think there'll be more tools to get this up and going and excited. And it's really, really important, I think, for the United States to stay on top of that, because I believe that who stays in the leader in life sciences is going to be hugely important for of geopolitical importance globally. Well, with that, Dr. Dina, it's a total thrill chatting with you today. It's a total thrill to partner with Gamito, and thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google 